This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 7th of December 2021. And Norman, yesterday I was just kicking back looking at a family tree of the... Sorry, kicking back? <laughs> looking at the family tree of the novel coronavirus. And it was striking me just how much change there's been since the ancestral strain. It was colour-coded. Uh, I do recommend people, if they're super nerdy like me, go and check out this website, nextstrain.org, because it shows the evolution of the virus over time. And it sort of starts off as like a bit of a trickle and then there's this huge blob of delta. And now you're starting to see this little sort of emergence of... Of Omicron there. Delta started from nothing. We know from little things, big things grow. We hope that maybe, well, we don't really know what we hope yet because we don't know if Omicron's a friend or foe when it comes to how it compares to Delta. But what are the features of a virus that goes from being nothing to being the dominant strain? Like what makes a virus go viral? Well, it's that combination of contagiousness and once the virus has been around for a while, as indeed SARS has since almost um, exactly two years since the first official diagnosis in China, once it's been around for a while, is its ability to infect people who have been infected before or who've been already vaccinated. So it's those combination of those two things. What you see is that it's essentially it muscles out the other virus, which is what Delta did. So progressively, uh, more and more of the samples that are coming in become samples of the new virus rather than the one that came before. So Delta edged out Alpha and to some extent, and to, and indeed in South Africa, Beta, and went round the world. And you just see it slowly taking over and it becomes exponential in some countries, which means that the it, it starts slowly. And anybody who's lived in New South Wales or Victoria knows this all too well, is that exponential growth is misunderstood as that hockey stick that goes straight up. Well, it's not. It, when it's low numbers, it actually goes up slowly. And then you get a hockey stick. So it if you like, it's under the radar to begin with, and then you suddenly see it going up. And that must have been what happened with Omicron, is that it was under the radar in South Africa, and then you're seeing the hockey stick going up. And when you see that going up, and you're not picking up a lot of delta, that's when you know it's taken over. And what worried them was they were seeing that pretty quickly. But Immunescape isn't the only thing. It's this sort of paired, what do I want to, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Well, it's two moving parts. That's right. Because beta didn't, beta wasn't enough. Beta had Immunescape. We were worried that our vaccines weren't going to work against it. And it kind of petered out. It really stayed contained to that Southern African area and didn't really go globally the way Delta did. It went to quite a few countries, but it didn't go, it, it didn't take off. And that's because of its contagiousness, really, is that it wasn't that contagious. So it was vaccine resistant, but didn't have the contagiousness of Delta. Delta is a bit vaccine resistant, but very contagious. And it really muscled out everything else. How long will it take before we can tell whether Omicron's going to stretch and um, win this horrible shootout that we're looking at or whether Delta is going to stay the dominant strain? So two years into the pandemic, it's a different situation from two years ago when nobody was immune, you didn't have any vaccination and so on. And now you've got borders up around the world. So everything's going to go in slow motion. And you're going to see a lot of variation between countries. But there's no question at the moment, Delta is still the dominant and most serious virus globally, including in Australia. Okay, but there are definitely places here in Australia where there's no coronavirus at all, no Delta, no nothing. What happens 
crystal ball gazing guy. I'm asking you to look forward into the future and tell me stuff that we don't understand fully yet. You're just inviting the trolls to tell me I got it wrong yet again. <laughs> what happens if Omicron turns up in a place with no Delta? Well, Omicron will become, it's in genetics, you call this the founder effect that you get the virus coming in onto virgin territory, that will become the dominant virus in Western Australia, South Australia, if that's the virus that comes in. But if Delta comes in, um, it'll be a shootout between Omicron and Delta. And if you look at South Africa, Omicron will win that shootout. So Omicron has perhaps an immune escape around our existing immunity, which was based on previous strains of the virus. It's not to say that it would be immune to any vaccine if we decided to make one against that particular variant. So who's decision is it to make variant-based vaccines? We've talked about these before, that they're in the works. How quickly can they be brewed up as um, targeting the new variant? Who decides which ones are the variants that need to be targeted? At the moment, I think it's a bit of the Wild West. You've, you've got announcements from Moderna and you've got announcements from Pfizer and no doubt Astra's working on a variant vaccine as well. So they're all doing their, their own thing. With influenza, it's a consensus arrangement where the World Health Organization, the international co collective of influenza centers around the world, they look at what's been circulating and they make a decision about what are the four or five variants of influenza that they're going to put in this year's vaccine for the Northern Hemisphere and for the Southern Hemisphere, depending on the circulating viruses. And that comes up by consensus and all the vaccine manufacturers fall into lock and step. Now, that arrangement, as far as I'm aware, has not yet emerged for um, the coronavirus because it's still a very immature situation. So it looks from the outside as though the vaccine manufacturers are making their own commercial decisions and bets on what they can sell into different markets in terms of variant vaccines. The problem that you've got if you're the purchaser or indeed if you're the vaccine manufacturer is which one are you going to buy? Because by the time you get the vaccine, there could be another variant. What you need is a vaccine that will cover all variants. Wouldn't that be nice? Are there any of those that look like they might come out soon? Well, there's tantalising evidence that if you were infected with SARS-CoV-1... So this is the original coronavirus from 2002-2003. Yeah, and got SARS-CoV-2 on top. So this is largely theoretical, but there is some experimental evidence behind it is that the combination of those two viruses seems to give you a very broad palette of immunity. So this is really speculative at the moment. But it could be that if you actually developed a vaccine for SARS-CoV-1, it could be your primer with a SARS-CoV-2 booster following that. Now, the problem is they were never able to develop a safe SARS-CoV-1 vaccine. So that's not as straightforward as it sounds. But that's ideally what you want, is a broad-spectrum vaccine that could cover variants in the future. So that's really interesting. Who's doing that research? Well, it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October, where they and we just, somehow we missed doing this um, on CoronaCast. How dare we? But essentially what they've done is that uh, you have, you've got a few thousand people globally who were infected by SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, and they've been immunised with SARS-CoV-2, and it looks as though when you look at the neutralising antibodies, the antibodies that are produced in that situation, they seem to cover a lot of different kinds of coronavirus. So they've made a theoretical assumption that this gives you um, a broad spectrum of immunity with this combination. So if you could actually develop a safe 
SARS-CoV-1 vaccine, followed by SARS-CoV-2, then you might have a winner. That is fascinating. Okay, Norman, well, let's just put the speculation to one side for a while and answer some questions from our audience. Sarah has written in with a very complimentary question saying... She's listened to every single episode, some multiple times. Loves Norman, loves Tegan. We love you too, Sarah. But she particularly likes you. You're missing that. Oh, you're being very, you're being very modest here. She really loves you. I've already called my mum and told her that everyone loves me. <laughs> uh, she has a question about that the vaccine for five to eleven year olds. Her son is going to turn twelve just after he becomes eligible for potentially a paediatric vaccine, and she wants to know whether she should give him the five to eleven year old dose or wait a week until he's eligible for the 12-plus dose. Well, we can't give you that advice. But it is an interesting question because the adult dose is three times the amount as the paediatric dose. So I've had lots of questions on Top Rank Radio about this. You know, I've got a very tall, big 11-year-old and isn't it a bit unfair? They're almost 12-year-old size and why aren't they getting the full dose? And it's just there's got to be a cutoff somewhere and it has been trialled in this age group. So, um, yep, if you wait a week, you'll get the full dose and arguably in a 12-year-old that might get well give you a better, a better level of immunity. But if you had to wait two or three months with Omicron circulating, it's not worth it. You're better getting your child covered. Kids have such robust immune systems. That's really what it's based around, right, that they don't need as much of a dose to get the, the strong immune response. I say not an immunologist, not really knowing what I'm talking about. Well, it, it's partly body size, and that you know, and, and parents get that, so that's why they're saying, "I've got a really big 11-year-old. Why can't they have the full dose?" And there is a bit of illogicality to it, but which is also, it is also true. What you're saying is that kids are not little adults; they do behave in different ways, as we as we know, in many different respects, including their immune system. And something that speaks to a question that we've gotten a lot of from people over the course of the pandemic about basically how well COVID can be transmitted or not via surfaces. And there's actually been a study looking at how many cash transactions there would have to be to basically yield a COVID infection. And I know most of my local coffee shops don't accept cash at all anymore, presumably out of a fear of COVID. As regular chronicast listeners would know that we are really down on the risk of, we're not down on it, but we're the risk of contact spread is really low. Anyway, this group, God bless them, have done a theoretical study looking at the risk of transmission with cash transactions. And they are saying that, you know, hold, hold your water now on this one. The risk of contracting COVID-19, and I'm quoting now, via person-to-person cash transactions was estimated to be once lower than once per 39,000 days. In other words, once every 107 years for a single person. The risk for a cashier at an average point of sale was less to be less than once per 430 working days. That's once every 21 months transmission. So I think you, you could say the risk from hard-end cash is pretty low. I do love contactless payment, but cash isn't dead, according to this study at least. And you don't seem to get deaded by cash. <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast, but send your questions and comments to abc.net.au slash coronacast and we'll answer as many as we can when we get to it. See you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>